0: Entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who seek excellence. (laughs) Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network.
1: Here's Marty Wolf. Okay, well, welcome everyone to the Business Builder Show. My name is Marty Wolf, and I am your host for the Business Builder Show. And if you're looking on a screen, you'll see Mr. Joe Coheen is with me. Hi, Joe. How are you, sir?
0: Marty, I'm doing well. How are you?
1: Doing fantastic. If I read the book, I should say something like, well, Joe, I'm a nine. And after this interview, I'll be a ten. How was that? Does that prove that I read the book?
0: I'm glad you have faith in my ability to bring you up a rung, Uh, and it definitely (laughs) demonstrates that you've read the book, which is more than I can say for a lot of people I've spoken to. So thank you for doing your your due diligence here, Marty.
1: (laughs) You bet. So a lot to talk about. First, I want to give a shout out to uh, Jason Pfeiffer of Entrepreneur Magazine who who connected us. So I always like to uh, mention that. Uh, it was so nice of them. And I also, before I do your formal introduction, I want to congratulate you, Joe, on being recommended in the next big idea club with Adam Grant and Daniel Pink and a whole lot of famous folks. So congratulations on that. That should that should sell some books for you, man.
0: Yeah, we, we hope so. We hope so. But it's definitely an honor. Um, it was pretty cool when they told us about that. It's great.
1: Yeah, that that's a, that's the big league. So, you, so you're so you there, Joe. So let me formally introduce Joe Cohane. I'm taking it right from the back of his book. He is a veteran journalist who has held high-level editing positions at Medium, Esquire, Entrepreneur, and Hemisphere. His writing on everything from politics to travel to social science, business, and technology has appeared in New York Magazine, the Boston Globe, The New Yorker, Wired, Boston Magazine, and The New Republic. He wrote a great book that we've been alluding to. It is called The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. So there's the title. I want to um, point out something, or I want you to be thinking about through this whole interview, folks, because I want to make sure this point gets made. I circled the word benefits, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. So, um, Joe, I'm going to put you on the spot right away. Uh, in the prologue of the book, you say, the fact is, in America anyway, we simply cannot stand the sight of one another. Well, I think that needs some explanation. So sure. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm mostly referring to politics, the kind of political state in the U.S. right now, the okay. hyper-partisanship. And, um, All right. You know, what what partisanship is, what hyper-partisanship is and hyper-polarization is, <clears throat> is a form of dehumanization. Um, there's a lot of research that backs this up that shows that when people are in a hyper-partisan atmosphere, when there is a time when they're really polarized they tend not to really consider the other side to be fully human in the way that they are human. We tend to attribute, you Mm -hmm. know, like less intelligence to them. We tend to think they have less willpower. They're less individual than we are. Whereas our side obviously has very vibrant minds and we're super smart and savvy and everything. The other ones are just kind of witless cogs in this big partisan machine. So when people, you know, and and that, that's accelerated under conditions of hyper-partisanship. And when, you know, when people, are in that sort of that sort of mindset and they don't have personal contact they don't have like in-person contact with members of this other group it allows that sort of misperception to go unchecked and get wildly out of control and we see it in america now there's this phenomenon called the big sort where democrats republicans no longer even share the same geographical space so they can go through much of their lives without ever encountering someone who holds who occupies you know the different side of the aisle Um, and that that accelerates dehumanization and it, it allows stereotypes to run unchecked. Whereas, you know, we know now from like a growing body of research that when you do have contact between members of different groups, it helps us humanize each other. It helps us understand each other. It it helps us find a way to cooperate with one another, but staying separate is actually kind of a catastrophe for politics and for societies. So that's what I mean. I mean, we don't, you know, people harbor completely inaccurate perceptions of what the other side is actually like. And there's been some interesting um, polling research on this too, just overestimating how rich they are, how poor they are, how Christian they are, how atheistic they are, whatever. Um, We have wildly exaggerated and wildly negative perceptions of other people. So that's what I mean. I mean, you know, politics has turned us into strangers. Politics and distance, I'd say, have turned countrymen into strangers.
1: Yeah. You mentioned the word research in your response to that question. And, folks, I want to tell you that uh, this is 300 and some pages, uh, this book, and the research behind it is just incredible. Obviously, Joe is a writer, um, but I love it when I see – The number of people that he's talked to, the research that he's done, the studies he's looked at. Worldwide, by the way, I want to make sure that people know that he's talked to people from all over the world. So um, it's broken down into three parts also. And the first part that we'll talk about now is what happens when we talk to strangers. And so talk to me about your experience with Georgie. At Trigger Conversations. And that was in London, I think, correct?
0: Yeah, she's in London. Um, So, yeah, to back up a little bit, you know, I wanted to understand what the possible benefits are of talking to strangers. And I wanted to attack it from every possible angle. And I also wanted to understand everything that keeps us from doing it. And that can range from, like, telling kids that everyone they don't know is dangerous to even things like urban design, population density. There's all all these things that keep us from talking to each other. But for the things, the positive benefits... Um, we're seeing fairly recently, you know, it's only over the last 15 years that psychologists started studying what happens when we talk to strangers, Uh, which is funny Mm -hmm. because we've been living with strangers for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And only recently (laughs) have people started to look into like what complicates these interactions and, and what good they might do. So there's a woman named Jillian Sandstrom who along with a few other psychologists have been doing this research. And what they've found is that, you know, regardless of age, regardless of gender, in some cases, regardless of race or ethnicity, people who talk to strangers or people who should rather say study participants who are sent out to talk to strangers think it's going to be a disaster. They think that people are going to reject them. They think they're not allowed to do it. They're going to make fools of themselves. You know, we have all these, all these, they think they, you know, they might be putting themselves in danger. Um, we have all these these very intense pessimistic hangups over whether or not we can talk to a stranger and how it can go. Um, so they studied a lot of that, but then they also studied what happened when people went out into the world to do this, to talk to people on mass transit, to talk to people in a coffee shop, whatever, out in public. And right. what they found overwhelmingly, and really overwhelmingly, I mean, it wasn't just like 51 to 49 is that people who engaged in these interactions were coming back and reporting that they felt happier, they felt more connected to the places where they lived, they felt even more optimistic, maybe more trusting. Um, there are tons of benefits associated with this. Um, and it, you know, it makes sense when you think about who, what a human is. A human is a hyper-social creature. So we need to socialize, we need to have that social connection. It's not like a new-agey thing, it's actually a very practical requirement for remaining healthy as a human being. So we know that sure. you know interactions with people we know and love friends and family those are really important probably the most important but what the research is showing us is that Even these little passing interactions, even a pleasant chat with the bus driver, even like talking for a minute with the kid at the coffee shop, um, those carry real benefits. And those benefits can really um, address some of the more pressing social problems that we face from loneliness to political polarization, which we can get into later. So, you know, after I discovered all this stuff and I talked to a lot of these psychologists um, who are fantastic, too, they were great, um, I wanted to understand how I could get better at it. So I come from Boston. I come from mm-hmm. very chatty people. My parents are were notorious for just chatting with people everywhere they go. And I've watched that my whole life. And I've seen them well into their 70s at this point continue to actually make new friends, which is, a you know, that's like a life goal. That's a pretty, pretty great way to live. Sure. Um, and for me, yeah. I was always pretty good about it. But I, I'm also a journalist. So I talk to, to strangers all the time. But I found a few years ago that I had stopped doing it. Um, I just wasn't, I was like doing the self checkout thing at the supermarket. Like I found myself withdrawing from the public, from strangers and I wanted to understand why. Sure. And the sure. reason why was basically that like, I was just really busy with a hard job as an editor and I had a young kid. So I was like exhausted. I was threshed thin. I didn't have any spare time anymore. And, and I withdrew and I started feeling kind of self-conscious about it and that made it worse. So I wanted to get back into it. Um, I knew what the benefits were. I knew the benefits personally because I had experienced them myself over the course of my life, and I wanted to rebuild myself as a social creature. So this woman, Gillian Sandstrom, who's a psychologist at the University of Essex, who's, who's marvelous, she introduced me to a woman named Georgie Nightingale, who, as you said, is the founder of a group called Trigger Conversations in London. And I got in touch with Georgie and Georgie told me that she was going to actually do a class on talking to strangers where she was going to have a weekend class and there were going to be students were going to come. And there were people who wanted to learn to be social, to be like fluid, to be like socially adept, right? To be, to, to learn, to be the kind of person who can just kind of get into any situation and connect quickly and make friends and all that stuff. So I bought a plane ticket and I flew to London and I took the class and, um, and she was fantastic. She was really smart. Um, really practical. She had gone deep into the research. The other students were, you know, frankly, pretty shy, um, ranging from like merely introverted to like deeply shy. Um, And they wanted to do this. They wanted to learn how to get good at this. And one of them had a really poignant line that I loved. He was a kid who'd grown up on a farm and recently moved to London and was like, you know, kind of daunted by how big the city was and just wanted to engage, wanted to get the most out of life. And he felt that if he learned to talk to strangers, it would be, it would give him um, the ability to travel, the ability to see the world, Um, which is really Uh great. You know, like you, and when you do that, you, you can travel literally and you can travel figuratively by meeting people and learning about people and being challenged and all that stuff. So Georgie had some fantastic pointers on what to do, how to do it. And I'll give you, you know, the one that you, you, you mentioned a little earlier to me was this you know, there's this idea of scripts. So when you're out in the world, say you're in a store or something and you're talking to the cashier and the cashier says, how you doing? And you say, I'm doing fine. How are you? And they say, I'm fine. And no one cares and no one's actually listening and no information has been exchanged, right? Like you're barely (laughs) there. Uh, and we do that all the time because it's it's sort of more polite than not saying anything, but it's not a real conversation and it's not a real connection. So Georgie recommended breaking those scripts that we find ourselves falling into. So when you get into a situation where you're talking to a waiter or you're talking to a cashier or something, and they ask you, how are you doing, actually answer the question. Um, so don't just say, I'm fine, how are you? Because that's a sign to them that you're not listening and you're not willing to engage. But what Georgie does is she says you have to answer with sincerity and specificity. So sincere in the sense that you're given a real answer that you're actually thinking about for a second um, in specificity, in the yeah. sense that I'll give you her, her great tip is answered numerically. So when someone says, how you doing, she'll say, well, you know, I'll say I'm about a six out of 10 today. Um, and I've done that a lot of times and it's, incredibly effective (laughs) because it signals to the person that you're actually having a conversation, right? Like I'm, something else is happening here. This person is actually here with me, like looking at me, that gave me an answer that's kind of audacious and kind of clever. Um, And maybe you say a little bit why you're a six out of 10 and then you ask them how they are. And, you know, honestly, nine times out of 10, they'll give you a numerical answer back. And now there's kind of this playful dynamic happening. And Georgie recommends just saying um, if they say I'm an eight out of 10 say, what will it take to get you to a nine? And then maybe they tell you a little bit about their day or maybe you learn about a a hobby or something. It doesn't have to go on for longer than like the time of the transaction, but you'll get a little connection there. And maybe you learn something and maybe you have a laugh or whatever it is. But the research is showing that though, even an interaction as slight as that can can be really powerful, can be really helpful. Um, And it's much easier to do than people expect, I think, or at least a lot of people expect.
1: Yeah. Does it not? Isn't there science backing up that you actually feel better? As a result of doing those things, and you point that out in the book.
0: Yeah, you really do. And and that was part of the riddle that, or part of the puzzle I wanted to solve. You know, before I pitched this book, I was just thinking about this a lot. And I had a conversation with Alan Alda, the actor, you know, the guy from MASH, who's Alda runs like a nonprofit that teaches scientists and technologists to speak to normal human beings. So he's like (laughs) a communications guru and he's great at it. And that organization's great. But he and I were talking about talking to strangers too, and both of us agreed that there was this sense of relief that we felt after, like it went well. You know, like not overwhelming, but like it felt kind of relief, felt kind of calm, felt kind of felt kind of good. And I wanted to understand what that was. And I think part of it, you know, at least as far as I was able to determine and do in doing the book, part of it is a question of expectations. We're very pessimistic about what the odds are that a conversation with a stranger is going to go well, and that's for a lot of reasons. So when it goes reasonably well, like when the person doesn't attack us, we're like, sweet, that was great. That was way better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. So there's a little relief there. But there's also yeah. the possibility that something's happening on a biochemical level um, that I thought was pretty intriguing. Um, you know, oxytocin is the chemical that our body creates that facilitates bonding. So like when a mother is not nursing her baby, her body, her brain generates oxytocin. And it's, it yeah. bonds you to the yeah. person that you're having this experience with. And it's also like a relaxant. So when the body creates oxytocin, you feel calm, you might feel something that almost feels like relief. So I was talking to a leading expert on oxytocin in Georgia, and he was just saying, you know, they haven't done research on this in a laboratory setting, but he was like, yeah, it would make sense that if you had a meaningful interaction with a stranger, and again, it doesn't have to go on forever, but like one of those like kind of flashes of connection you have sometimes you know, sometimes you're sure. even on like a plane yeah. or something and you have a, an amazingly great conversation with someone um, that might generate oxytocin. So the relief might actually be happening on a biochemical level, uh, which is really interesting. And that tells you yeah. that like, you know, we are wired to a pretty great degree to form connections with other people, yeah. you know, because that's the, the secret of humanity's success is that we're very good at cooperating with strangers in a way that you don't really see in the natural world.
1: And we have become, uh, when I sent you an email over the weekend, uh, you know, just a reminder that, uh, you're coming on and I, and I said, uh, well, reminder that you're coming on, uh, but your book somewhat humbled me. Um, because as you indicated at the beginning, I, I too have fallen into that trap and I think I'm a pretty decent guy, you know, but I too have fallen into that trap. And uh, I've already started to practice. And how many of us in the professional world, especially, can attest to the fact that we had a casual encounter? We said something nice or somebody said something nice to us, and that turned into a lifetime or maybe not a lifetime, but a valuable relationship professionally or personally, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I get those stories all the time. And there's yeah. <clears throat> there's definitely a really strong business case to be made for doing this stuff, obviously. And everybody knows networking is a big deal, but networking goes beyond like connecting on LinkedIn. Um, it's oh, really yeah. valuable for a business person to develop the skill of talking to strangers. Number one, because business is social, right? Like socializing yeah. is business. Business is socializing to a certain extent. Um, but also because it just gains you access to more perspectives in a really useful way. So if you have an idea for a product or a service or whatever it is, you can go kind of test that out in the field by just talking to people. And you don't know what you don't know. And by talking to as many people as possible, you will be awakened to your blind spots. You'll get better ideas. You'll get pushback that might be really, might be uncomfortable, but it might be really beneficial to whatever you're trying to do. Um, And then just being able to make a connection with people quickly is really key for, for business people as well.
1: Absolutely. So folks, you're listening to the Business Builder Show. My guest is Joe Cohane. I'm your host, Marty Wolf. We are talking about Joe's book, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of connecting in a suspicious world. I keep wanting to want to use the word benefits because there are so many in this book. Yes, I'm promoting the hell out of Joe's book. I want you to buy it. I want you to listen carefully to this interview. Okay, I'm going to wander around a little bit, but again I'll I'll ask questions. You can answer them not ask them answer them. You can go any way you want, but I all I want to talk about, I hope you do want to talk about Ben Mathis, M A T H E S. Um, and something you experienced called free listening. That was fascinating. That Talk was, to me about that.
0: Yeah. So, so that was, uh, it was fascinating and it was a weird and, and kind of great experience. Um, and also something that I think all, I mean, I say as a journalist, all journalists should do that. But I think all business people should try to do that too. Because uh, it's really good training. But so I heard about Ben Mathis, who runs an organization called Urban Confessional. And what Urban Confessional is maybe uh, 10 years old or something at this point. It's, it's getting pretty big now. It's in 50 countries, I think. Um, what Urban Confessional does is they have volunteers stand in pairs on street corners with like crude homemade cardboard signs that say free listening on them. And all these people do is they stand there and they allow people to come up and talk to them. Um, and it sounds extremely uncomfortable and it sounds really weird. Uh, and I read about it and I was like, even by my standards, this feels a little, this is a little, this might be a little odd, but, um, but I want to go <laughs> check it out. So I went, I went out to LA to go spend some time with Ben Mathis, the founder of the organization. And I wanted to do it just because I, you know, you see testimonies from people and they, they say it's really profound and it's really poignant. It's really beautiful and powerful. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll take the ride. So I go out there and the secret of urban confessional besides just the willingness to stand in the street and be like vulnerable, right? I'm pretty easily embarrassed. So it was like, you know, the prospect is mortifying to me. Like standing out there advertising myself like that is something that I am in no way comfortable with. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so I go have breakfast with Ben and we hang out for a while and then we go take to a street corner in East Los Angeles and we have our sign and um, and people just start coming up to you and they're curious about it because it is a really curious thing. It's really unusual. You don't see things like this. Um, And the methodology that Ben developed to allow people to do this, the secret of it is something that he calls imbalanced conversation. And imbalanced conversation means that only talk about yourself 20% of the time and make sure that you're talking about the other person or the Mm. other person is talking about themselves 80% of the time to get them comfortable you know, to let them know that you're actually listening to them. And this isn't one of those things where you're listening for two seconds for something that you're interested in, then you're going to like run away with the conversation, right? Which is what everyone does. A lot of people do that. I certainly, I am guilty of that for
1: sure. Most, most of the time. Yeah.
0: Right, right. So you have to like practice this restraint, which is really challenging to do to not jump in and to not do the thing we always do, which is like, Oh, you like baseball. I like baseball. And then like, start talking about yourself. So when you're listening, it's, you know, there are different terms for this in psychology. It's like empathic listening or active listening, whatever it is. It's all, all pretty much the same. And you are listening to understand them. So if they say something you disagree with, don't fight back. Just try to understand how they got to that understanding or that belief, right? So what's their life story? Like what brought them there? Um, Ask open ended questions like, you know, how did that happen? Or who is that? Or why did that matter? Instead of questions just like, how can you be so stupid as to believe such a crazy thing, right? So you want to like draw them out and you (laughs) want people to tell you about themselves. Um, And don't solve their problems and don't offer advice and just don't do all the stuff that we do, which is it feels really unnatural to cede control of a conversation like that. And for me, especially, because I, I that's not my you know, I'm from like a family or like a, a culture of loudmouths in Boston, Massachusetts. It's not easy to like <laughs> hang back that I live in New York. So it's like doubly bad. But um, but you do that. You hang back and you just listen and you ask them open open ended questions that are just like you're being curious and you're helping them articulate whatever it is they're trying to say. Um, And the research shows that being listened to actually helps us think more clearly. So when they feel kind of comfortable like that and they feel that you're respecting them, they'll think more clearly. They'll have a better time articulating what these feelings were. Um, And then when it's over, they'll feel connected and they'll feel, you know, from what I saw, like extraordinarily grateful at the opportunity to just dump this stuff out. And I thought it was going to be. On top of uncomfortable, I I just couldn't imagine the type of person who was going to go do this, who was going to come over and talk to you. And it turned out that it was like a real range of people. Um, And they told their stories. And after a little bit of suspicion at the beginning, once you reassured them that like you weren't trying to sell them something or or convert them or something, um, they would just go. They would just talk, you know, and you realize that there's this really pent up demand for just for telling those stories, for like uh, disclosing this stuff. Um, and people don't have venues for yeah. that sort of thing. And so for them, it's good because they get to actually air some of this. And for us, it's good because we get like a little tour of the life of another person, particularly when their life is very different from ours. We get a sense of what it's like to be somebody else. And for me, that's like the road to wisdom right there. Right. Understanding that your reality isn't everybody's. Sure. Right, you know? Um, so it ended up being amazing. I mean, that's um, so it was, true. it was incredible. I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I get kind of chills even talking yeah. about it. I'm not the kind of guy who would usually go for that, but but it was great but even from a practical sense like training yourself to listen like that was super valuable and i, I that 8020 thing sticks with me all the time now
1: yeah the listening so somebody's going to go to a networking meeting and they're going to set up this uh this stand like you described like the peanut stand or the, who is it the lucy stand right the psychiatrist is up with free <laughs> listening someone's going to go someone's going to go to a networking meeting and have that if you do you have to give joe Cohen Credit for that, and you have to tell people to find him on Twitter, and it is at Joe Cohan, and his last name is K E O H A N E. So, I'm going to move into why don't we talk to strangers, and I'm going to read something out of the book. It's page uh, 142. Uh, here's what it says from the book We know that expanding our social networks is in our nature, that's part of the appeal of the city, more people. But there's also something more personal, more intangible that might have driven us into the gates of the city. We're talking about a city, obviously, where more than half of the world's population now resides. It's a concept in psychology that comes from an influential psychologist by the name of Arthur Aaron, and it's called self-expansion. Fascinating, Joe. Talk to us about that.
0: Yes, self-expansion is this idea that there is like an intrinsic drive among humans to expand themselves, right? And the process is sort of like you, you're you enriched by experiences. You're enriched by relationships with other people, by overcoming challenges, stuff like that, by even seeing movies that mean a lot to you or reading books that mean a lot to you or anything like that that every time you do that, you internalize a little bit of that experience and it makes you a more complex person, right? It gives you more insights into different things beyond your own life. Um, it introduces you to questions you might not have thought to ask, you know, like a really good friendship. A friendship makes you grow, a really good friendship, a really good relationship makes you grow. So self-expansion is that idea, that you it's growth basically. Um, and, you know, there seemed to be something, there's a woman named Monica Smith, who's an archeologist who studies cities, And she made the case that there's no reason for, no practical reason for humans to move to cities, right? We had everything we needed before that. We lived kind of small agrarian villages. Um, The villages interacted with each other enough to keep like a bit of traffic of people going, you know, between villages and new mates and new partners and stuff coming in. Um, That was already happening. People were alive. People were still, you know, we would have covered the world, not as quickly as we ended up doing, but, you know, the, the species would have flourished, at least in terms of growth. Um, And yet we chose to move to cities and like flocked to cities, even though cities, you know, especially if you're looking at Greco Roman times, like really dangerous, really diseased fires, you know, like some human suffering on an immense scale. And still people kept coming to these cities. And partly it was because of economic reasons, because there was like, you can make a living there. But Aaron's idea and Monica Smith's idea is that it's that drive for self expansion that made cities really alluring to people. And Richard Sennett's a great sociologist, um, he made this case too just saying like people move to cities because they want um because it allows them to create a more compl- complex version of themselves um it allows you to yeah. You know, gains access to to things that you didn't even know you wanted, you know, thoughts you didn't even know you needed to think, people you didn't know you needed to meet. You know, the more experiences you have and the more types of people you meet, the more complex you become because of this self-expansion idea, because you're taking bits of all these pieces, every meaningful interaction you have takes residence in you in some degree. Uh, And it kind of stays with you. And so that's what it is. Like it keeps you, it makes you complex. And there seems to be some, you know, humans struggle with complexity too. We can be overwhelmed. We can get pretty freaked out. Um, when things don't make a lot of sense or things are, seem chaotic, but there does seem to be some intrinsic drive that makes us want to do that. And according to Arthur Aaron, who I got in touch with, um, he was like, "Yes, yeah, strangers should do that. Conversations with strangers, as long as they're pretty good should give you that, that expansion, that kind of self expansion.
1: None of us like extreme stress. Uh, at least I don't. <laughs> I think most people don't like extreme stress, yeah. um, but I'll ask this question this way and you address it. Um, so, why, when we have horrible events like September 11th or floods, or you get the idea, they're just terrible events. Uh, why is it that nobody hesitates to talk to someone then, but when in our calm world, we'll ignore the 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 person who's making us coffee, we'll ignore the bus driver, but in times of stress, we will talk to just about anybody, right, Joe?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a guy named. Oh god, I'm going to forget his his first name. I think he's dead anyway, so he's not going to take offense, but he was a um he studied cities, a guy named Goffman, Irving or Ernest, I honestly don't remember what his name was. But he kind of in the 70s he laid out the times in which it's appropriate to talk to strangers, and he was very 1970s about it. The answer was like there are almost no times when you're allowed to talk to strangers, but one of the times was like a calamity. So if something yeah. bad happened, all those barriers drop. All the things like you're yeah. all in it together. And the thinking behind it, you know, you can use some kind of thinking from, from like urban studies and psychology and, and sociology. Um, it's this idea of triangulation, where if you're experiencing the same thing at the same time, you have a relationship. You know, so if you're if you're at a ball game and you're watching a ball game, you can talk to a stranger more easily sitting at a ball game than you can if you're sitting on a bus, um, even though you're still yeah. on the bus because you can talk about the game. Yeah. You know, you know enough about each other that you feel comfortable talking. And in a time of calamity like that. Um, yeah. all those barriers fall down and we're experiencing this thing and all that stuff falls away. All those inhibitions fall away. Um, you know, the flip side of it though, is that when we do feel stressed or we do feel attacked or we are attacked um, or we are under serious threat, we also tend to circle the wagons. Right. So there is like a tendency to talk to strangers more freely yeah. in a, in time of a calamity. But if it's like an us versus them phenomenon, it's like nine eleven. you talk to anyone who lived in New York who is Muslim after nine eleven, it's a whole different experience, you know? Um, people closed yeah. ranks, but then they kind of tried to exclude yeah. this other yeah. group or persecute this other group. So it's super complicated, but that definitely happens too. When we feel stressed, we tend to more tightly define our yeah. group and we tend to get pretty pissed off about members of other groups and, you know, more than, more than pissed off. We tend to go after them sometimes. Um, we tend to dehumanize them when we feel afraid. And that's yeah, part of the psychology too. Off.
1: I'm Yeah. You use the uh, word us. Um, Go deeper on what do you mean when you talk about a newer, more expansive us? Yeah. a little deeper on that.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think the pessimistic reading on humans is that we're by nature xenophobic, right? That like the fact that we live surrounded by strangers today is like a fluke of history and an accident and we're not wired for it. Um, I wanted to demonstrate the book and I went pretty deep on this. Um, deep into yeah. you know, the kind of ethnological field studies and, and the kind of dawn of human, yep. humanity and apes and everything else to try to understand this. Um, we can be really xenophobic. Under stress, if we're competing for resources, we can be remarkably um, violent and, and cruel and dehumanizing. But the story of civilization is the story of the other part of human psychology, which is inclusion, Right. So we started out as far as we know, we can't really know. But as far as we know, we would have been small bands of six to 20 people or so, small hunter gatherer bands. And, you know, we probably could have stayed like that, but we didn't stay like that. Instead, we expanded the bands. We started forming relationships between our band and the other band. And we found ways to do it. We found kind of mechanisms to make it to make it possible to do it safely. We started to trade. You know, all these things started happening that allowed us to expand our conception of who we are, what our group is. And then you saw, you know, band nexuses of like a thousand hunter gatherers who all considered themselves part of the same group. And then you saw chiefdoms and all this stuff, cities, states, you know, international alliances, all these things you keep seeing over the course of human history, a broader and broader and broader and broader understanding of who we are. So yeah. for like Americans, although we're severely divided right now, but at our best, it's remarkable to think that 300 million people all think that they're the same people. It's crazy. It's crazy that I can travel to like Argentina and meet an American and immediately be comfortable talking to American because we're Americans, even though we have nothing in common and we live thousands of miles away from each other. It's amazing. So it is like we have the psychological capability of creating a really expansive understanding of who we are. Um, And the, you know, the downside of that is that, you know, this is probably the most widely studied phenomenon in psychology is us versus them psychology. So we favor our kind, right? And it happens naturally. And it doesn't have to be, Violent, doesn't have to be destructive. It's just we tend to favor our own kind. And so the yeah. question is: in a really diverse and increasingly globalized world, how do we expand? How do we further expand the idea of who we are? Because when we have a really exclusive idea of who we are, we tend to get very upset at the people who are not us, right? We tend to get into a lot of fights um, because yeah. we tend to de- we tend to dehumanize those other people, either a little bit or a lot. Um, so for me, the imperative is like the difficulty of living in a, in a time when it's actually really challenging to try to, you know, draw a bead on who are we? Like, what is my group? What group do I belong to? Um, you know, I'm a yeah. musician, I'm a writer. I, you know, I'm a Northeasterner in the U S obviously, but I'm also comfortable traveling and I can connect with those people pretty easily. And i like them. And I could, you know, I have friends all over the place, all that stuff. How do I, there's no way for me to narrowly define who my group is. Um, but at the same time, we seem to have like a need to feel that we are part of a group, you know, this is like one of our, like belonging is a really important thing for people, um, psychologically. So that's the big thing is like, how can you come up with a more expansive, more encompassing understanding of who we are to hold societies like the U S together or to hold the world together, frankly.
1: Yeah, I think we need to do more of that. Um, so, so you've been very passionate about writing the book and, um, so we need to wrap up, Joe, and and uh, I always feel like this is terribly unfair to uh, an author who goes through all this work. Um, and I know we didn't hit everything, but to kind of start to wrap up, um, what question didn't I didn't I ask you or that you want to make sure we get the point across? Or is there, or in addition to that, is there something that you want to make sure that we always remember in addition to buying the book and, sure. and sharing this interview?
0: Yeah, so, the, the oh. big the big thing is that um, people are really, a lot of people, and not everybody, but a lot of people are really anxious about the prospect of talking to strangers, um, and young people especially, because they just, they don't have the practice that older people have. They've done a lot of communicating on digital devices. They, they haven't been like present in the world the way that we are. They have lots of other great things that they're very good at, but that, so that's kind of like freestyle socializing um, is not a particular skill of there. So they're very anxious about talking to strangers. So, you know, the message I'd like people to walk away from walk away with is that that's really common. It's you know, common in young people, but it's common for everybody. A lot of people are really anxious about this. Yes. And it can happen. That anxiety yes. can come from a lot of places. It can be exposure to stranger danger propaganda. Like when I was a kid, cops used to come into our classroom all the time and tell us that like, everyone in the world who you didn't know was dangerous. You know, that's a really bad thing to tell a kid because when you're in trouble, you tend to turn to strangers. Yeah. You know? And there's no statistical basis for it. We're much more likely yeah. to be killed or, or assaulted by people we know. Um, So I think that that plays into it. I think a lack of practice plays into it. People feel out of shape socially and certainly after COVID, that's even worse than it was before. Um, Social factors, you know, racism, political polarization that can increase the anxiety. Um, But a lot of what you see when scientists or when psychologists interview people about why they feel uncomfortable doing this is that they just don't think they're going to be good at it. Um, They don't think they're going to know what to say. They don't think they're going to be able to find something to talk about. They think they're going to sound ridiculous or that the person rejects them or the conversation is going to go on for two seconds and then they're going to have to sit there awkwardly after or it's going to go on forever and they won't know how to get out of it. Um, Some English people said that um, they were worried that once they started, they they wouldn't be able to stop talking about themselves. And that was very anxiety producing to them, which is super (laughs) English. Um, but the fact is yeah. like the research is, is borne this out again and again and again in places from Toronto to Turkey, involving all different types of people that you know, when people do make the effort to do this, it tends to go much better than they thought it would. Um, it tends to be much easier. The conversations go longer than they expected. They easily figure out something to talk about or something in common and they come away feeling pretty good. It's just a question of getting over all these like really intense hangups that people have about doing this. Um, And when they do, you know, it can be transformational again. Like I'm not, I'm not like a, you know, I wouldn't call myself a great lover of humanity coming into this project, but it definitely made me feel a lot better about my species as a whole. It made me feel better about the world at a time when everybody feels bad about the world. So I think in that sense, it's really valuable and, and it's worth the effort.
1: Yeah, you closed the book very passionately, Joe. I mean, you really did. I mean, you you, you really gave us a, a call to action, an emotional uh, plea. Um, so uh, I loved the book. Again, the power. We've been talking about the power of strangers, the benefits of connecting in the suspicious world. My guest has been Joe Cohane. His last name is K-E-O-H-A-N-E. You can find him at on Twitter, at Joe Cohane. Joe, you have a website also, don't you?
0: I do. Yeah. Admittedly, bare bones website, but it's just joecohane.net. And my I've, my contact information is there. So if anyone has any really good stories or they just want to ask a question, they should hit me up. I, I usually re- respond to all my emails.
1: Yeah. I maybe not even should say this, but uh, I know you've been doing, if there's some book clubs or some things like that, that want to get in touch with you. And in some cases, it might be worth for you to join in and, and, and join a conversation with some of those people. Is that accurate? Is that okay to say? Yeah. Hit me up. Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, Joe, hey, thank you so much for being part of the Business Builder Show. Congratulations on a great book. I wish you much success. I knew you changed me. I've been nicer the past (laughs) few days. Joe, thank you so much for being um, being my guest.
0: Thank you, buddy. I really appreciate it. It It's a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Find all our shows and many other great podcasts at businessbuildersmedia.com. That's
1: businessbuildersmedia.com.